so much of what we've sung this morning and celebrated this morning through uh, communion is uh, ties in uh, with where we are in our study through the Gospel of Matthew, and much of it I think will come to mind as we as we consider the text before us this morning. If you haven't already and haven't looked in your bulletin to see where we are, you can turn with me to Matthew 21. And while you're turning there, one of the uh, games that uh, we sometimes play in our family, especially with the kids, is uh, called 20 Questions. You've probably played it or a variation of it. You have 20 questions, yes, no questions, we had to teach them, to try and figure out what the other person is thinking of, usually a person, a place, or a thing. And I'll admit that we play a lot less of it as my kids became fascinated with sharks. I think they know every one of the 500 shark species and they want me to name the specific one. Let's put a damper on the game. But there is a version of 20 questions that is played out every day or every week. And it revolves around identifying the real Jesus. Depending upon the person or the church, you will hear about a Jesus who is not really concerned with sin, or a Jesus who is primarily concerned with being your friend or your helper. You'll find a Jesus who is not actually God, or a Jesus who is merely a historical figure. There are any number of Jesuses presented in churches and by persons who claim to be Christians. But who is the real Jesus? In Matthew 21, where we'll be this morning, the first 11 verses, this is a text that is sometimes called the triumphal entry. It's often referenced or read or sometimes even taught on the Sunday before Easter, celebrating Christ's entrance into Jerusalem leading up in that week leading up to the crucifixion. And as he enters, the crowd's curiosity is piqued. Who is this Jesus? Who is this man who enters Jerusalem on a young donkey with throngs of people shouting praises to him? It's a question the crowds are asking, particularly those in the city who are less familiar with Jesus' Galilean ministry. Who is Jesus? gets ahead of ourselves a little bit. But the crowd's answer to who is Jesus reveals a Jesus that is far too small. So our question this morning, the question that I need to answer, the question that you need to answer is this, is your Jesus too small? But how will you know if it's too small a view of him? Let's see what we can learn from Matthew's gospel this morning in order to rightly worship, and rightly view Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to study this morning, to open up your word together, to learn from it, to glean from it. It is the word of life. Father, we say that, and it seems so abstract at times, and yet it really is life-giving. It's what rejuvenates us. It's what restores to us the joy of our salvation. It contains the key and the promises to eternal life. Let us not quickly glaze over it, read over it, especially a text that may seem so familiar. 
Help us to meditate upon it, to think upon it, and help us to not only rightly answer the question of who is Jesus, but rightly believe, worship, and exalt our Savior. In your name, amen. Read along with me, and I'll read the first 11 verses here in chapter 21 of Matthew. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches for the tree, from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. You know, Matthew has spent the past 20 chapters, they weren't chapters to him, we added those later, but he spent what we would look at as the past 20 chapters introducing us to Jesus from his birth through many years of his ministry. And this final eight chapters of Matthew, roughly 30%, a little less than 30% of the gospel, goes into slow motion. For the remaining eight chapters, he centers on, focuses on, causes us to dwell upon this final week of Jesus' life. Beginning here with Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And then he'll lead through the events leading up to the crucifixion. Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, followed ultimately by his ascension. And in these opening verses, we find Jesus and his disciples, not just the twelve you will remember, but that larger group of disciples reaching the end of their journey to Jerusalem from Jericho. That would have been a distance of nearly 17 miles if they were taking the Roman military road. And Matthew doesn't relate what took place before arriving at the Mount of Olives, at least not after Jericho. We looked at that last week where he healed two men who were blind. But we do know from some of the other Gospels that when he reached the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, that Jesus stopped in Bethany and stayed with his close friend Lazarus, along with his sisters, Mary and Martha, that is Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. And you may remember Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. It's one and the same sometime earlier. And Matthew makes note of the Mount of Olives and it begins to lay the foundation for our expectation of who Jesus is. Apart from simply being a geographical reference and a geographical marker, this mount had significance 
for the promised king of Israel, the promised kingdom of God, the promised son of David. If you want, you can turn in your Old Testament to Zechariah chapter 14. In fact, if you have an extra piece of paper or something, you might want to hold it in Zechariah because we'll be back to Zechariah 9 as well. But in Zechariah 14, in verse 4, we read, In that day, his feet, this is the Messiah's feet, the coming king, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all his holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will still be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. From Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. From Benjamin's gate, as far as the place of the first gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hanael to the king's wine presses, people will live in it. There will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. This is not the only place that the Mount of Olives, Olives figures prominently in the Old Testament, specifically in reference to this coming day of the Lord. You see, God had promised through the prophets that His Messiah would rule and would reign over all the earth. And that that reign would be preceded by a violent reshaping of the earth. And so it was there in the shadow of the Mount of Olives, this mount that would have prefigured, would have brought to mind the promises that all Israelites, at least all Israelites who had been raised in, with an understanding of the Old Testament, their Torah, they would have had an understanding that this Mount of Olives is a reminder, an anticipation of what is to come when the Messiah comes to rule and to reign. But it's there in that shadow of the Mount that Jesus instructs two of His disciples to travel to a nearby town. It's possible that town he references here is Bethpage, or it could even be Bethany. We don't know for certain. Those are two of the towns that are there on the eastern slopes. But it was there in that village that they will find a young donkey and its mother. And this is rather interesting. If, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this story a number of times. And so it's easy to take a lot of this for granted and to certainly miss some of the significance of it because, quite frankly, we don't ride donkeys a lot. But first off, one of the reasons this is interesting is that 
Even then, most persons walked around on foot. In fact, if you were going to celebrate the Passover, Jewish custom and the additional religious requirements that they added on to the Old Testament were that if you were a pilgrim traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, you had to travel on foot. So right away, this is unique. Something special is going to happen. Attention is going to be drawn to Christ. Jesus is going to flaunt convention. Secondly, think about what a king would ride on. Now, right away I need to say that it is not uncommon for a king to ride on a donkey. In fact, a donkey, a mule, that was still a could still be used in a stately event for a king to ride upon. But when you think about a king marching into a city, especially when he's coming to conquer, what do you think him riding upon? It's a horse, right? I think it's interesting that David's, King David's son Solomon, whose name is a derivative of shalom, peace, whose reign was marked by peace and prosperity. When he was coronated, he rode on the offspring of a donkey. There's something markedly different when Jesus chooses to use this donkey. It's saying something about his current coming. This coming is not meant to be seen as a political overthrow, but something altogether unique, a coming of a king the same king, to bring peace. Now, if you've read the rest of your New Testament and you've read into Revelation, you know from Revelation 6 as well as Revelation 19 that Jesus will come on a horse. That day is coming. But here, around 2,000 years ago, he came on a donkey. Which would have symbolized peace, not overthrow, not violent overthrow. And what is this peace that Jesus was bringing with him? It was not a peace between authorities and citizens. It wasn't peace from Roman rule. It was peace between God and man. That's what Jesus has already said, that he would give his life a ransom for many. That's why he was coming. Matthew provides further explanation about why it was that Jesus rode in on the foal of a donkey. It was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And by the way, Matthew has in view more than one prophet here. Because he begins with Isaiah 62, 11. When he says, say to the daughter of Zion, that's actually from Isaiah 62, 11, Behold, your king is coming. In fact, you can turn there, and then we'll go from there to Zechariah. It says, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He's drawing to mind the promises that are there in Isaiah, but he doesn't continue with that. Instead, if you'll turn over to Zechariah 9, maybe you already held your place there. In Zechariah 9, it takes an unexpected turn from what you would expect of the king coming. 
Where there it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Israel. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a promise that echoes all the way back to Genesis 49.11. This promise of the one who will come riding on a donkey. If you were to turn to Genesis 49, you may remember the blessings of Jacob upon his sons. And he gets to Judah and he says, The scepter, the ruler's staff, will never depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Shiloh being a reference to the Messiah. Until the Messiah comes. And then it goes on in 49.12 to describe him tying up his young donkey. Him riding on a donkey meant very much to those who were steeped in the Old Testament, who understood not only the peaceful nature of the coming on a donkey, but the hope and the promise that came with it. That hope of Shiloh, that hope of him who is to come, that hope of this ruler, and that ruler's staff was a turning back, a breaking of the curse, the curse that brought struggle and strife, the curse that caused all to begin to long for the rest and the peace that could come. And yet in all of this, Matthew doesn't let us get away from what is there in the center, that he is gentle, mounted on a donkey. This is what Jesus has been teaching, this gentleness, this humility, this lowliness. This is how Jesus presents himself at this time in history, during his first entrance into Jerusalem as king. This is not his first time in Jerusalem, but his first time coming as king, announcing to everyone, no longer hiding who he is, He comes as one who is there to serve and not be served. One who is there to give his life for the many. It's the same one who said back in Matthew 11, 28 through 29, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is that gentle king coming. And he's coming to prepare the way for rest. And the rest the people need most is not rest from work. It's not rest from oppressive governments, but rest from being at enmity with God, at war with God. This is the peace that Jesus promises. This is the peace that he brought with him that day. Now there is a coming kingdom or reign that will bring an end to oppressive governments where creation will be freed from the curse and we will experience physical rest. That has been promised to us. Everyone who has humbled themselves, who has cried out to God for mercy, who has repented of their sins, will experience that rest. But the way we know that's true is because of the spiritual rest and peace that is found through Jesus now because of this week. This week that begins here and ends with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Well, the two disciples did as Jesus asked. They went and brought the young donkey along with its mother. They placed their garments upon them, and Jesus rode upon the colts. So the scene's been set with the Mount of Olives in the background, riding upon a young donkey, which is the promise of Shiloh who was to come, the ruler and the, the one who comes with the, the scepter and the ruler's staff. And the question is, is do they recognize who he is? Do they recognize this is the Messiah? This is the Christ who will save them from their sins. Do they recognize that he is the hope of Shiloh, the righteous branch? Do they recognize that he is the one who will rule and reign in righteousness? Well, if you jump into verses 8 and 9 right away, it sure seems like it at first, doesn't it? I mean, the scene shifts in verse 8. Instead of Jesus speaking and giving directions, it's now the crowd and those in the city who are speaking. And Matthew starts by noting it's a, a very large crowd. Some of your translations may say, that most of the crowd, there at the beginning of verse 8, most of the crowd spread their coats, but the term is actually the superlative of many. It's really the mostest. This is the largest crowd. This is an extremely large crowd, larger than any has been before, and they're laying their coats down. It's not just that some of the crowd are doing this. It's that this is the largest crowd there's been around Jesus at this time, and they're laying their coats on the ground. Matthew is identifying the unique size from all previous crowds that before have surrounded Jesus. And this makes sense, not just supernaturally and sovereignly through God bringing people together, but also the time they were at. They were entering Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover week. The city's population was normally estimated between 75,000, maybe up to 100,000 would normally live in the city of Jerusalem. During Passover week, that size would swell considerably. At any given time, it's estimated that there could have been a quarter of a million persons in the city. Some believe it's actually much more than that. As many, as many as a million persons would be in the city or at least come through the city Passover week. Maybe they came at different parts of Passover week. So you have all of these pilgrims coming into the city. The roads would have been congested and flooded. And so it makes sense that there was this large crowd surrounding Jesus as these pilgrims came to celebrate the Passover. And so Jesus and the disciples are cut up, caught up in these arriving travelers along with the crowd that was already following him. So the normal crowd had swelled considerably in size. And recognizing that Jesus was arriving not on foot but on a donkey, they began to respond. Because they recognize he's doing something unique. This is what a king would do. They begin to lay out their coats, creating a welcome procession in the city. This was a way of recognizing a king. It was the ancient version of rolling out the red carpet. Matthew notes that in addition to the coats, they were cutting branches, probably because they ran out of coats to throw on the ground. John tells us they were palm branches. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. And then we notice that Matthew tells us they were shouting. What were they shouting? They were shouting, Hosanna. Now, it's an Aramaic term. Aramaic is very closely related to Hebrew, and Aramaic was a common language of the time, between that and Greek. And Hosanna is, really, it's a prayer. It's a prayer for salvation. 
That's what the term would normally be used as, uh, or at least it had originally been used as. By the time of the New Testament, it had been shortened. It could still mean a prayer of salvation, but it was also an exclamation that was in and of itself the prayer. You would just say Hosanna, and that was the entirety of the prayer. It was understood that you were praying for salvation. Now, what type of salvation would depend? Persons would use it to pray for physical salvation from a dangerous circumstance. They would pray for, maybe it was a social salvation. They didn't like the Romans oppressing them. Could also be used, certainly spiritually, of salvation. And so the persons were there shouting, Hosanna. And they say, to the son of David. This is a messianic term. It's a term that looked for the descendant of David, the promised ruler, the one who would rule and reign in righteousness. In fact, you may remember the two formerly blind men. They were blind at the time when they were on the road when Jesus started this journey from Jericho just a few verses earlier. We read this at the end of chapter 20. They were crying out, Son of David. And then once healed, they began following him. Maybe it was them that threw on the Son of David title. We don't know. They were the ones that got the crowd to add to their Hosanna, the term Son of David. Now the words the people are saying at this point sound right, don't they? This sounds like what you should be saying of Jesus. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You may notice in your Bibles it's That whole section is indented. Maybe it's in italics. It's because these words are actually drawn, at least most of them are drawn from a psalm or a song. I mean, it sounds like they get who Jesus is. But I would suggest that there are a lot of people today who if you heard them singing praise songs, you would also think they got who Jesus is. They might be able to sing praise songs that have really good theology. But when you start talking to them, or when you hear them talk, you realize that many of them don't really understand who Jesus is or who God is. I think that's true for many in the crowd that day. You see, the people coming to Jerusalem, they would come singing. And there was a set of psalms that they would sing. They were called the Hillel Psalms. Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And they would sing these as they got closer and closer, ascending up to Jerusalem. And as they neared the gates of Jerusalem, they would have had the final words of Psalm 118 in their mind and on their lips. And it's there, near the end of Psalm 118, that we read the prayerful expression, O save us, or Hosanna. It would have sounded slightly different in Hebrew, Hoshana, but it's Hosanna in verse 25 of Psalm 118, followed immediately by blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds were repeating and singing the words of Psalm 118, a psalm and song that they were very familiar with. They'd likely already been singing. They certainly would have been singing as they approached the gates of Jerusalem. And they began to sing these and Apply them to Christ. And these are very true words, and they are rightly applied to Jesus. It's the right person to whom they should apply them. The question is this. 
Do the crowds understand the significance of what they are singing? And do they know what they are saying? Again, if we have no other information, we'd be hard-pressed to say anything other than, yes, they seem to. But we have verses 10 and 11. After he enters the city, we read that all the city was stirred. This, by the way, is not the first time all the city of Jerusalem has been stirred, is it? Remember when Jesus was born? And the Magi entered looking for Jesus. They began going around saying, where's the one who is born, king of the Jews? And everybody was terrified. The city was stirred because of the king. They were afraid of Herod, that he would hear this. Well, here again, the city is stirred. Now, there's probably an excitement and energy around the arrival of Jesus. They had everyone talking and wondering, especially those who weren't familiar with them. And we see that they actually ask, who is this? Who is this Jesus? And the crowds who had been traveling and followed Jesus, who knew who he was, likely coming from Galilee, responded saying, this is important, note carefully what is said. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now tell me, is there anything wrong with that answer? In and of itself, is there anything wrong with that answer? Is it a wrong answer? Well, technically, no. It's not a wrong answer. Jesus does fulfill the role of the prophet. The problem is, the answer is not nearly enough. They could have just said, Jesus is a man. Well, technically, that's true. But he's much, much more. You see, Jesus is not merely a prophet. Do you remember Jesus asking his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Back in Matthew 16. And we learned from them that the people were saying he's perhaps John the Baptist raised from the dead or others were saying he's Elijah, he's Jeremiah or he's one of the other prophets or he's a new prophet. Well, apparently nothing has changed. Nothing has changed from that time they still consider him to be only a prophet. Not the Messiah, not the Christ, not the Savior. Contrast the crowd's answer with what Peter says when Jesus asks in Matthew 16, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responds by saying, you are the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, the Anointed One. So that term means the Messiah, it's the anointed one. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response is, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, that is who He is. That is who Jesus is. That is the correct answer to who is this Jesus. But the crowd still does not call Him Messiah or Christ. There are some in the crowd who would, but as a whole, they do not call him the Son of the living God. This crowd has still not accepted or recognized Jesus for who he is. They still have far too small a view of Jesus. They see him only as a prophet. They do not see him as the creator of the world. They do not see him as their savior. It's a little wonder then 
that in a week's time, less than a week's time, by the time we reach chapter 27, this same overall group has a new song they're singing, and it's crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. You see, that's what too small a view of Jesus will lead to. Like the crowds, Jesus will be a person of convenience. When it's convenient, you'll worship Him. When it's convenient, you'll praise Him. When it's convenient, you'll pray to Him. But when you're pressed, you will abandon Him. You will shy away from Him. Remember Jesus' words to the crowds, as well as His disciples in Matthew 10, 32-33. Therefore, everyone who confesses Me before men, I will also confess Him before My Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Again, he's coming on a donkey here. Humble. Proclaiming peace. But there is a day coming when he will come on a horse with a sword in his hand his cloak drenched in blood, bringing vengeance and with him the wrath of God upon all who will not call out to him while he can still be found. Do not delay. If you have never called out to the Lord to come to him confessing your sins, your spiritual neediness, as we've talked about so many times, Recognizing your spiritual poverty, that you cannot save yourself. That you are a sinner under the wrath of God. And you have not come to Christ calling out to Him for mercy. Then do that today. Because there is none He will turn away who do that. Not a single one. Is He a person of convenience for you? Does he simply make you feel better about yourself? Do you just grow up in a church where Jesus was expected, following Jesus was expected? Are you ever ashamed to admit you're a follower of Jesus? Have you ever been in a situation where you're ashamed? If that's the case, then you have too small a view of Jesus. So how do we fix that? The answer is actually kind of simple. You probably already know it. So you need to learn about him. You need to read about him. You need to remind yourself of who he is. You most likely have too small a view of Jesus because you're not spending enough time with him. Enough time studying his word. Enough time reading his word. Praying to him. Thanking him for what he has done in your life. And remembering the great work he has done for you. The only other option is that he hasn't done that great work in your life. But if you want to have a bigger view, a right view of who Jesus is, then you need to pour yourself into the study of his word. Dwell upon it. Meditate upon it. Delight in it. As the psalmist David describes, 
so many different ways and in so many different pictures, delighting, tasting the Word of God. He is described in John 1 as the Word. The Word became flesh and has dwelt among us. Are you tasting of that Word? If you are tasting and eating and drinking of that Word, then Jesus will become bigger and bigger. Your view of God will become bigger and bigger. So much so that any fear, any shame, any trepidation you have of people begins to fade away in light of the greatness and the bigness of who God and who Christ is. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You. Father, we want to rightly think about Jesus Christ We want to rightly think about you. Help us to do that. Father, if there are any here this morning who have have not called upon you, confessing their sins, crying out to you for mercy, would they do that this morning? And Father, for those of us who have done that, Father, there is not one of us who could not have a bigger and better view of you. Help us to dedicate ourselves and our time and our efforts to knowing you, to understanding you, to studying you, to growing in our relationship with you through prayer and the study of your word. In your name, amen.